Goldie and Bendy. Hello, this is the podcast they could not stop, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. Now, I'm adventure seeker number one, Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, also known as Waldy. And my job is to be the red carpet across which glides adventure seeker number two, the legendary Bendor Grosvenor, otherwise known as Bendy, who fills this podcast with expertise, connoisseurship and an unparalleled knowledge of Scottish farming techniques. Bendy, how's it going on your Scottish farm? Um, it's going fine. A little bit muddy, a little bit slushy. We've had snow constantly for four days, but not enough on the ground to go sledging in. And I think that's really bad form on behalf of the weather. But it's so lovely to see you again, Weldy. Thank you very much for another generous introduction. Uh, one day I'm going to stitch together all your introductions from the beginning of the podcast. And every time I'm feeling down, I shall just play it all. Oh, would well, you know what I do when I'm feeling down? I turn on the BBC and I watch... Britain's Lost Masterpieces with Bendor Grosvenor. And I believe there's a new series on at the moment. I think I caught one on Monday, didn't I? How's all that going? Thank you. Yes, we had the first one on Monday. It was originally meant to be a series of three, but unfortunately uh, I got COVID uh, partway through filming and we had to grind to a halt. Uh, so there's only two, I'm afraid, and one is still on the shelf. I'm not sure quite when we'll get it finished. Well, the one I saw was really good. Uh, a, a scarred-looking Bendor Grosvenor spouting wisdom, as always. Uh, so, listeners, uh, don't forget to catch up on that. Now, as always, there's tons of things coming up on this podcast. There's Raphael, there's Van Gogh, and there's more tartan than you can shake a sporran at. But first, Bendy, so last week on my Twitter feed, there, there were people complaining about the difficulty they were having following the podcast. So, you know, we're talking about art but people can't see it. Now, of course, all the pictures we talk about, everything in the podcast, is illustrated beautifully on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com, right? Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. keep saying it. We say it all mm -hmm. the time. Go to zczfilms.com. It's all there. But the problem is that most people listening to the podcast, that they're, they're walking or jogging. And what they find is they can't click on the zczfilms.com podcast page at the same time so i've had to promise them on twitter bendy that you and i but especially you are going to try harder to describe the stuff we're talking about I mean, even if you can't go to zczfilms.com and the podcast pages as you jog you can visualize the pictures because of the upcoming brilliant descriptions of them by bendy can't you bendy uh, you certainly can i'll, I'll do my very best Wally. Excellent. Okay, there's various bits of news this week, uh, so we're going to kick off the podcast by tackling some of it. It's shocking news from the art world. Ah, Bendy, this isn't actually shocking news, but it's quite interesting. The National Gallery in London has just released a list of its most popular pictures, the things people are looking at most often, uh, usually online. And do you know what came out top? Um, was it, uh, um... Let me pause you in your ums. It was actually The Arnolfini Marriage by Jan van Eyck. Uh, that's surprising, isn't it? I mean, usually it's Constables Haywain uh, or Turner, the fighting temeraire, isn't it? But no, this time it's The Arnolfini Marriage. Now, Bendy, you know everything about everything, right? So uh, what is it about this picture? Why does it come out top like this? And don't forget, you've got to describe it for the joggers. Okay, well, you've picked perhaps the most complex painting in the National Gallery collection for me to describe in only uh, audio terms. Well, no, it's a uh, bloke, a woman and a dog standing uh, in a room, right? Yeah, 
but there's so much more than that. And people indeed have written entire PhD theses on the contents of the picture. So I'm not even going to try other than to say, yes, it's a man, a woman, a dog standing in a room, looking in a rather curious way at the viewer with a mirror behind them. And the, the theory is they're getting married, although we don't actually know for sure what's going on. This is it, isn't it? It's this big mystery of the Arnolfini marriage. And we, even the fact that we call it the Arnolfini marriage is a cross your fingers title. There's no one actually does know exactly what it's all about. And that mystery is what keeps people, as it were, going back to it, isn't it? Yes. The painter Rothko, you know, the abstract expression is Rothko. He said a good thing once. He said, there's more power in telling little than in telling all. Because what he means by that is that if you don't give people the answers, they're going to keep flooding in trying to get them, aren't they? So it's, it's a sort of magnet. Yes, I think, you know, once you can say everything you need to say about a painting, it's, it stops becoming interesting, doesn't it? So yeah. uh, the best paintings are things you can speculate about forever. Well, uh, we're not going to spend long on this because everybody knows the Arnofini marriage, but uh, I like the hat, the, the hat the guy's wearing. And if you go to pictures of Her Majesty the Queen in any of her recent visits to Balmoral or any of her state openings, any time she's been in public recently, look at her hat. Because I reckon they're all modelled on the hat the bloke's wearing in the Arnofini <laughs> marriage. They're exactly the same shape. Um, they really are. And the other interesting thing is the big green dress worn by the woman, who may or may not be pregnant. Remember, that's another thing people love to fuss about. Is she pregnant or isn't she? But the other interesting thing is that her dress is made, um, there's wool on the outside, but the inside is squirrel. So it's the little belly, the white belly bits that you get on red squirrels. Um, and more than 2,000 squirrels were involved in creating her outfit. How about that? 2,000 wow. dead squirrels hanging off her. Poor squirrels. Um, you suffered so terribly for this lovely dress. But you, you slightly sprung this list on me, Wildy. I so have. The Arnolfini marriage portrait is at the top. Um, what else is on there? Any Van Dykes in the top five? Nope. No Van oh. Dykes. Nope. Oh. No Van Rubens? Dykes. No Rubens. No Rembrandt. Really? Um, quite not, no William Dobson. Mind you, there, there are no William Dobsons in the National <laughs> Gallery. Let me see. There's uh, the Leonardo da Vinci version of The Rocks. That's number five. Um, Surab, Bathers, Agnès. That's at number 13. Um, Joseph Wright of Derby, Experiment with a Bird in the Air Pump. That's number 17. And mm -hmm. one that really surprises me, number 20. But, you know, The Sultan Mehmed II by Gentile Bellini. And why would a Bellini portrait of the Sultan Mehmed II make the list of top 20? I don't know. Maybe it's a school project or something. Maybe. I don't know. Well, uh, I'm glad people have been looking at art online. The National Gallery during the lockdown is fantastic. And the National Gallery website is quite good in the way you can zoom in on things. But clearly, Wilder, you and I have got a lot more work to do in order to push our favourite artists onto the reluctant nation. So everybody must go and click Van Dyke immediately <laughs> and get him up the rankings. Absolutely. And Rubens and Rembrandt. Um, now, but the reason I mentioned, I, I didn't, I don't want to spend any time on this because everybody's taste is different, but it's, it's really because all the galleries are upping their game online. So this list is part of a sort of online thing about making, making the gallery more noticeable and doing interesting things online. And the really big bit here is, I think it's, it's the other big news of the week. And that's that the Raphael rooms, which are in the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum. I mean, they've recently been completely redone. A complete rebuild has happened of the rooms and they'll be on show just as soon as the lockdown finishes right bendy but in the meantime there's this ambitious new internet site devoted to the cartoons in pretty extraordinary detail everything about them and i know you've been looking at it bendy so you're the man to tell us first of all i mean the raphael cartoons you know what are they and why are they so important 
Well, well, there's seven of them. They're huge. And uh, despite the protestations of our listener, I'm not going to describe them all in some detail because there, <laughs> there's so much going on in them. But these were tapestries made by Raphael when he was uh, commissioned by Pope Leo X in about, I think, 1515 or something to design a series of tapestries to go in the Sistine Chapel on the lower levels of the Sistine Chapel. And this was, if you like, the great contest between Raphael and uh, Michelangelo um, in the Sistine Chapel. And these, the cartoons, the paper designs, are so lovely, beautiful drawings, uh, which were then coloured by Raphael and his studio assistants, and then sent off to the weavers, um, all the way in Flanders, to be made into tapestry. And if you, this amazing website, it's, it's absolutely so fantastic to see it. You can zoom in in the most fantastic detail and you can see all of Raphael's pentimentis where he's changed his ideas as he's made these compositions come alive. And then you can see where they've pounced them, where they've, they, they've pricked little holes in so that the, the design can be transferred. It's really uh, tremendously impressive stuff. You can also do it in uh, infrared. So you can see, as I said, every every single stroke, not just the, the finished stroke of, of the drawing on the uppermost layer, but where you can see where Raphael has changed his mind. It's really very revealing. Mm. Bendy, there'll be plenty of joggers who um, are hearing you here. They'll go home and they'll look up this information on zzfilms.com when they see the pictures. And they'll think to themselves, mm, these don't look like cartoons to me. Why are they called the Raphael cartoons? Yes, that famous Pete and Dud joke about the Leonardo <laughs> cartoon where uh, Peter Cook says, I, I can't get the bloody joke. Anyway, the, the word cartoon has changed meaning in art history and art. It used to be basically a, the, the word for a design, didn't it? Cartoni um, in Italian, isn't it? Yeah, Cartoni, there a, bit of, uh, there's a bit of paper, yeah. There you are. And they are the most extraordinary survivors, these cartoons, aren't they? Because there's seven of them. They were originally made with just single sheets of paper, sort of A4, A5 uh, size, which were then pasted together to, to make these enormous drawings. And then the drawings themselves were cut up into meter-wide strips to be sent uh, and put on the looms of the tapestry makers. And then somehow there were 10 of them, uh, seven survived, so keep your eyes peeled for the missing three. And they were bought by Charles I, our greatest collector king in about 1620s, uh, taken to Britain. And he bought them not for their sort of, I've got these amazing Raphael drawings idea, but because he wanted to make a series of tapestries. And we forget these days, don't we, just how highly prized the art of tapestry was. That's right. I remember reading somewhere, 100 Van Dykes would buy you a small tapestry. It could yeah. be something like that. Yeah, yeah, under Charles I. Yeah, I mean, because they're so, they take so long to make, don't they? They're so intricate, so detailed. Yeah, and the materials used to make them were hugely valuable. So, you know, often a pure gold and silver thread um, was used, and that's why uh, they were so mm. expensive. But these days, they, have you ever looked from online, say, in an auction for a Flemish 16th or 17th century tapestry? I mean, they're, they're remarkably cheap. Well, you must have loads of them in your castle, right? I, <laughs> I don't. I don't have the space, but... Are they cheap? I mean, I know that there's been obviously a, a complete, as it were, collapse in tapestry price um, and everything's been flipped on its head. And whereas they used to be far and away the most expensive thing you could get. Yeah. These days, there isn't that they're equivalent between, as it were, the work that was needed and the result. That's disappeared, hasn't yeah. it? So, yeah, the, the price of the labour to make them uh, versus how much you can pick one up these days. I mean, I have got, I have got one on my wall here, not in our castle because we don't have a castle, but I have got one in our dining room and it's enormous. And it's slightly frayed at the edges, but it is early 17th century. And it's wow. the most amazing piece of craft. And it cost me something a little more than a thousand quid because mm. it was just in a tiny auction. 
But the history of these cartoons that we're discussing reflects that change in art, that change in taste, because it was only in the late 17th century that it was decided that these these strips of Raphael's drawings should, should actually be made something into a picture. So they were laid onto a canvas and all glued together under King William III. And he then had a special gallery built for them in uh, Hampton Court Palace. Mm. And I often, I, I often wonder if the V&A these days is actually the best place for them. Well, that's a good point, really, because, I mean, I've been to see them a few times in my visits to the V&A, and it is a gloomy room, or it has been, of course, it is all been redone, so I'm sure it will come out much brighter. The thing about these kinds of drawings is you can't really display them in any bright lights. They're incredibly fragile. Um, so you have to show them in a rather moody twilight. Um, I must say, every time you walk in, I mean, these are, you know, amongst the greatest Renaissance artworks in the world, let alone in England. You know, for, for seven enormous drawings like this by Raphael mm. to survive in this state of quality, in this excellent condition, really, given what's happened to them, is in itself a miracle. I mean, Cromwell got rid of all of Charles I's collection, didn't he, pretty much, when he dispersed it. But he kept these, didn't he? Yeah. They still belong to the Royal Collection. But they are astonishing things. I mean, full of invention and grand design. And I mean, you could write books and books and books just on the pictures that were influenced by them, the impact they've had on subsequent art. But yet, when you go into the V&A, or at least when you went into it in the past, they seemed rather dull. You know, there's a twilight there. And because they're drawings with colours that have inevitably faded, they're not visually screaming at you with the sort of excitement of something like the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's been a tendency to underestimate them, I think. And it's great that they're being represented in some way. I mean, they, they deserve to be. They're so important. But I've got I think it's a huge advantage over you, but you might be able to correct me here. I think I can say that I have an advantage because I've seen the tapestries themselves installed in the Sistine Chapel, oh. actually hanging in there, which I don't think you have, have you? No, I have not. I've, the only time I've been in the Sistine Chapel is is amongst the flow of tourists that you can never stop in. Mm. Well, they're, they're never on show either. I mean, they're no. so fragile, the actual tapestries made from these tapestry designs, from these cartoons, that they're never on show in the Sistine Chapel. But there was this occasion in 2010, there was a huge celebration of, of Sistine Chapel issues, and they actually, you know, back in the Vatican, they put them out there again, and there they all were, hanging in the Sistine Chapel. I mean, a little film about it, actually. It's on YouTube if you want to go there. And, God, it was so exciting. Oh, it was so exciting. Because at the bottom of the Sistine Chapel, you have these painted curtains at the moment. These mm. are curtains that are painted in the time of uh, Sixtus IV, so when the chapel was made. So they're illusionistic curtains, all very good, but they're not as good as having actual tapestries there by Raphael. So in a way, they complete the Sistine Chapel. Mm. I mean, they're hugely important. I mean, almost indescribably important and it is good that someone's gone to some some trouble at last to put them before us in a better way and the website is fantastic I and mean, there's loads of great zooming to be yeah. done there no, i know we can't describe all of them let's just pick one which i think is the best one um, and that's called the miraculous draft of fishes i've got one tell us what that's about bendor well i haven't got the photo in front of me well so you're you're an advantage here but um <laughs> This is when uh, our Lord Jesus uh, encourages, is it St. Peter, to cast his net on, on the other side of the boat, and, and hey-ho, there's a whole load of fish there. Yeah, so half of the Sistine Chapel um, tapestries are about the story of St. Peter, and the other half is the story of St. Paul. So the St. Peter ones are the most complete ones here in the Raphael cartoon room. So Christ's gone out on a boat with St. Peter and some other apostles, and they're in the Sea of Galilee fishing, and Peter fishes away, and he doesn't catch anything. So 
Christ says to him, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And we, you know, we see the boat, we see the Sea of Galilee, we see this fantastic bird life that lives on the Sea of Galilee, some cranes in the foreground, and these ambiguous blackbirds flying over. In the website for the v and they, they're calling them ravens, but I think that they're probably chuffs because they've got red bills. They're, they're a strange amalgam of some kind of crow. But anyway, so there's bird life flying over, bird life by the side. Peter chucks his nets over the other side of the boat where Jesus says, and then pulls out this enormous glut of fish, huge amounts of fish. Suddenly it's all successful, the fishing. And that's what you're seeing in this actual drawing of the boat being um, filled with fish and Jesus sitting at one end, Peter kneeling before him. And Christ is saying these famous lines to him too. He's saying, Peter, you shall now be a fisher of men. I mean, that line has had an awful lot of literary impact. I mean, the wasteland, all those things that have been written about, this whole idea of becoming a fisher of men, the fisher king. So um, it's a loaded moment. It's beautifully done by Raphael because it's basically a landscape. It's a boat in the sea with a city behind and lots of nature around it. Um, gently done, beautifully designed. Is this the one where we see Christ gesturing with his arm outstretched? It's sort of outstretched, but it's not the one where the, the, he's, he's more outstretched than the next one along, where he's actually calling St. Peter and giving him the keys to heaven. He's come back from the dead and he's giving Peter the keys that says, you're going to be the next pope, you know, the Bishop of Rome. Okay. So, But his hand is a bit outstretched, but it's, it's Peter who's got the He's sort of leaning forward and sort of praying. So joggers, what we have to imagine is a small boat, five or six figures in it. Most of them are pulling up a net and they've got their tops off, so it's just muscles bulging. Christ is sitting on the end and St. Peter kneeling in front of him um, with his hands lifted in a kind of benediction. Uh, and there's um, fish being yanked into the boat, a lovely landscape behind and some beautiful cranes in the front, European crane, beautiful bird, great big bird with a little red spot on its head. And one of the really wonderful things about this, this cartoon is that you can see the reflections in the water. And God knows how difficult that was for the weavers to weave afterwards. Mm. Uh, you can see like the reflections of all the figures. And the interesting thing about the Christ reflection is that in the reflection, he's wearing a red outfit, but in the actual boat, he's wearing a white outfit because the paint that his white outfit was originally painted in with red has faded. So mm. it, what is now white was originally red. So the reflection is red, but the outfit is white. So all this is in the VNA website. I think this is the drawing where in the infrared, you can see the various positions that Christ's hand has been altered into. Yeah. And, and when you're looking at it on the infrared, it has the effect, it's a bit like a cartoon, you know, when you're drawing a cartoon and you want to suggest something is moving, you put little movement lines around it. Yeah. And the, it looks like Jesus is waving. You're like, cooey, you're in. <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to go back to when you were in the Sistine Chapel, that marvellous mm. privilege of standing with the tapestries. How do the composition of the tapestries compete with Michelangelo's ceiling above? Because that, that must have been in Raphael's mind when he was making these cartoons, he was thinking, well, I'm, I'm the ground layer with, uh, you know, this is what people are going to look at. And I've got to stop them looking up at Michelangelo's ceiling. And do, do you think Raphael pulled it off? Um, there's no sense of competition there. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I mean, obviously he was showing off um, and trying his best. But th the way it feels, more, more accurate, it's more like a beautiful layered cake. So it's like the bottom layer of something delicious, of a sort of beautiful black forest gatto or something. <laughs> and every layer as you go up is tasty in a slightly different way. So at the bottom, you've got these amazing tapestries, um, which are really especially interestingly coloured and beautiful. And then you've got the, the, the row of paintings by Michelangelo's predecessors in the chapel. So Botticelli, Signorelli, 
um, Perugino. There's this whole wonderful sequence of often underestimated great frescoes in there. And then you've got the Michelangelo on top. So it's, 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 a, it's a layered feeling, but it does make it feel complete. So without the tapestries there, it's a bit like having a cake without the bottom layer. Very important to have your bottom layer. Yeah. It's, it's so important. So, yeah. yeah, for me, what I really remember about it is just this sudden sense of completion. Ah, yeah. it's meant to look like this, you know, you go. But it's a wonderful thing. And, and very, very rarely they, they pull them out. So if, if the opportunity ever comes uh, again, Bendor, I thoroughly advise you to uh, to take it. Anyway, that's probably enough of that. It's a great um, website, isn't it, Bendy? And um, we all wait when... Uh, the renewed rooms uh, with the Raphael cartoons in them are reopened to us some point after the lockdown, right? Yeah, see you there. So, absolutely fabulous. Now, um, to the best of my knowledge, Bendy, Raphael uh, has never had a Hollywood biopic made uh, about him. So, you know, he's a really lucky guy, isn't he, in that sense? Um, Because uh, other artists, let's face it, have not been so fortunate. The Woody and Bendy Awards. Ah, uh, yep, folks, it's the Waldy and Bendy Awards, where uh, we've set out heroically, selflessly, to find the worst film about an artist ever made, and to hand that film a Wendy. Now, um, they're all bad, agreed, but some are worse than others, and this week it's poor Van Gogh who gets the movie treatment, not just once, but twice, we've got two Van Gogh films to pour over, uh, and we're going to start with the most famous of them, which is Lust for Life, starring Kirk Douglas as Vincent and Anthony Quinn as Gogam. It was directed by Liza Minnelli's dad, Vincente Minnelli, uh, and came out in 1956. So, uh, Bendy, Lust for Life, did it get your juices running? Uh, well, you know, I watched it on Amazon Prime, where people can see it themselves if they if they if they really really want to, if they're gluttons for punishment. Um, and you know, when you click on Amazon Prime, you can either buy a movie or you can rent it. And often, I think, oh, you know, this could be a keeper. Maybe the kids would want to watch it one day, or maybe I'd like to see it again. Uh, and foolishly, I clicked buy for this one, seven ninety nine. I wish I'd clicked rent. And I'm going to send you the bill for seven ninety nine for making me watch this film. It was. Uh, horrifically painful, I thought. I didn't enjoy it at all. No. Did you like I, it? I, well, I, I liked it a lot more than you. I, mean, I rented, so I'm not being tight like you. I, you know, I, I didn't have to then deal with the, the huge overspend. <laughs> How can you say it was that bad? I mean, listen, well, this, is, this is a film that comes at the end of things like Pollock with Ed Harris, Frida with Selma Hayek. I mean, after what we've been looking through uh, up until now, surely Lust for Life was a sort of major improvement and put a bounce in your skip. Surely, Bendy. No, no, it can't do. Because it just reaffirmed everything that we've said so far, is that artists uh, generally don't make good material for biopics. Um, you've got to focus on a moment or a painting. Um, this one tries to begin at the beginning and ends at the end, and in between you get a mental illness depicted by lots of gurning. You get emotion portrayed by lots of shouting. It's got one of those sort of full, fat Hollywood soundtracks from the 1950s and 60s that just makes you anxious because there's uh, lots of violins and choirs going on all the time. Um, the script is a bit ploddy, um, and it was summed up for me. There was, there was a line where Gauguin shouts at Van Gogh. <laughs> he says, why don't you just shut up? So that was I, I felt yes. Why don't you all just shut up? Because there's lots of um, overwrought, uh, overdramatic acting in it. it, it really... How can you say the script was shoddy? Do you remember the bit where um, Gauguin says to, to Van Gogh, "You paint too fast," and Van Gogh replies, "You look too fast." 
I mean, come it on, did that, like that's... it. It did the, the part of it I most liked was it did feel like quite a good portrayal of you and me. Actually, um, you know, we love each other dearly, and we're great friends. But if we spend too much time together talking about art, then it all gets a bit intense. And sometimes listening to you too much, I, f I feel like my ears are in danger as well. Let's go back to the beginning here. You say it, it tells the whole story. That's just not true. We actually catch up with Vincent quite a long way in when he's in the Borinage, uh, which is this dreadful part of Belgium full of coal mines where he went to become a kind of unpaid missionary. Now, I've been there when I went on my treading in the footsteps of Vincent van Gogh film, and it is a ghastly place. And all that, that happens in the film it do, did happen in real life. You know, he did give away all his clothes. He did live like a pauper. He was chucked out by the, by the church authorities because he seemed to bring the reputation of the church down. So, so it, it had a kind of gritty realism to it. And you see, I think, I, I, think, I think Kirk Douglas is rather good as Van Gogh. I mean, obviously, there's the same thing you always get in these, which is that visually he does look like him, you know, rather strikingly, he does look yes, like Van Gogh. I agree. Um, well, I say that, but you know, there's only one, well, there's two photos of Van Gogh, um, and they were both taken when he was much younger. So you say that they tell the whole story. In fact, the whole early part of his life, he was spent in England, a lot of it, as an art dealer, um, working for Goupil and Sons, uh, being sent here by his art dealer family. Um, then he became a missionary in England. None of that is in Lust for Life, but that was the only time when there were any photographs of him taken. After that, there were none. He hated having his photo taken. There's one back view of him sitting with Emile Bernard by the, by the side of the Seine, mm -hmm. where you don't see him at all. So yeah. our, our image of him is constructed very much by his own self-portraits. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that all the films about him you ever see tend to base themselves on this one self-portrait that he did actually in Paris of all places, not in Arles, where he's got the straw hat and there's a blue background and he looks like a peasant in a straw hat, right? Yeah. That, that's the look that everybody adopts here. And in, in the next film, Willem Dafoe adopts it as well. And it's Van Gogh's idea of himself. So already we're, we're removed from the truth. Um, but but what, what, it, what it does do, I think, the setting the beginning of it in the Borinage, it just does convincingly present him as a sort of crazy guy, you know, an artist who will go all the way, an artist who's doesn't turn the tap off, you know, in his real life, he's like that. And you know that when he starts painting, he'll be like that. Now, of course, the film then takes lots of shortcuts to get through the story. So, you know, chronologically, we leap forward at a, at a lick. Uh, to, to get to Arl, which is what all these films want to do. You know, they want to get rid of all the other stuff and just get to Arl and get yeah. to him and Gogan as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, but I'd like the characterization that Kirk Douglas brought to it. I mean, he, his, his Vincent is tortured and difficult, but at the same time, there's something light about him. There's a sprightliness to him. You can imagine him enjoying the irises when he paints them or the sunflowers. And that isn't always true of, of the Van Goghs in, in films. They're usually far more laborious and heavy. We'll get on to Gauguin in a minute, but don't you think that the actual Vincent here is an appealing character? Um, no, it didn't appeal for me. I, I agree with you, actually. The, the first part in the Borinage, when he's at, going down the coal mines, that, that I thought, this is a promising film. But then it took a turn for the worst um, and lost its way. Uh, and it just felt like it was trying to make Van Gogh into into a sort of uh, in a Hollywood saintly vision that that doesn't really work for me. Mm. Shows quite a lot of his art. You know, we always complain that there's not enough of his art or the artist's art in the films. There's quite a lot of it here. Yes, I think yes. Vincente Minnelli does go out of his way to yeah. to show what he was working on. 
Yes, I must concede that too, because at the beginning, the first thing you see actually in the film is a, is a sign of uh, a line of credits saying, we're very grateful to all the owners of the artworks who let us photograph them. So no, that, that is definitely a plus. You, know, you, you do see a lot of actual Van Gogh in the film. And by and large, the storyline is true. There are some elisions. You know, there's that thing where he meets the prostitute in The Hague scene, who's called Christine here. And that didn't happen in the way it's presented. But, I mean, he did fall in love with his cousin. He was always being rejected. Uh, and by and large, the art history here is is relatively reliable, which is not true of certainly the next film we're going to be talking about and, and isn't, isn't true of a lot of Van Gogh films. So for a basic art history, it's not too bad either. Mm. Okay, well, I, I feel moved to fight for it because I think it's a more honourable effort than than many. I, I know what you mean about things like the the thunderous Hollywood music and that. There are plenty of things about it that annoy. Um, I mean, Gauguin. I love Anthony Quinn, and I, I think he's Gauguin. He got an Oscar for best supporting actor for for popping up for five minutes or whatever it is in the <laughs> film as Gauguin. But I mean, he does command the screen, doesn't he? And and the basic idea here that. Gauguin is this flashy bloke who comes in with these big ideas and women like him and all that and Vincent scrubbing away the failure on the corner. I mean, that does seem to have been more or less what happened, you know. Um, and it's great casting. It's great casting. Anthony Quinn is a good Gauguin and Kirk, I think, really pulls it off as Vincent. So, And there's big cinemascope sort of imagery everywhere. It's got a grandeur to it. It's fun. There's a few laughs here and there. Um, I just didn't find it a painful experience in the way that you're describing. So I would put this higher up the list, much higher up the list than you. So you must be the kind of person that loves those 1950s uh, epics. Think, you know, they're often biblical, aren't they? Like, do you like the Ten Commandments or the robe? No, I don't. I don't like any of those. This isn't like that. It's not laborious in that way. It's much lighter of touch. I mean, this is what I like about it. I think Kirk Douglas's Vincent is lighter in spirit. As I said to you before, he's a guy you can imagine spending a lot of time painting beautiful flower paintings because he's not heavy, oppressed by the world, this ultimate victim that sometimes you get with Van Gogh. Um, okay. and there's, a, there's a sort of cheerfulness to him, and particularly when Gauguin's in town. And um, cinematically, that appealed to me. But anyway, uh, I, I get what we're at here. You're not particularly pleased with it you want to give it uh, very few marks i liked it a bit more i'm going to give it a few more marks so we'll, we'll finish with that and move on to the next one because you bendy you forced me to watch another film about mangoth um you know you suggested that we also watch uh, at eternity's gate which is this 2018 film this time with willem dafoe as vincent and somebody called oscar isaac as gogan uh and the big news here that in this film is, is that it was directed by that uh, noisy and spectacularly egotistical New York painter, Julian Schnabel. Now, Bendy, this was your idea that we watched this. So are you pleased that you had that idea? I'll be very pleased when I hear your reaction to whether you enjoyed the film or not. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's wrong. I need to hear from you first. I think you can tell from my voice what I'm going to say. Don't tell me you liked it. I loved it. Oh, no, I genuinely God, loved it. Bendy. I, I really loved it. I, I happily watched it again quite soon. How could you? It was so grim, laborious, <laughs> pretentious, and above all, wrong with a capital R. You know, there was nothing in here about Van Gogh. It was all about Julian Schnabel and his fantasies of what being an artist is. And this overwhelmingly 
self-serving idea here that the big message that you're not appreciated in your own lifetime you have to die and then you're appreciated later just like Jesus Christ just like Van Gogh just like Julian Schnabel you know that that really ticked me off um that and the endless wobbly camera work i mean the wobbly camera work did all the heavy lifting in this film i mean nothing was in focus properly on purpose then he, he did that thing which cameramen in recent years have loved doing which is smearing vaseline on the lens so that the bottom of the picture is out of focus there are bits of it that were shot in yellow there were voices drifting by here there and everywhere and there's this just this ludicrous sense that the maker of this film feels that they are somehow touching or presenting the real voice of Van Gogh. It ground me into the, into the dirt, this film. It really did. I thought it was absolutely appalling. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased. I like this now for two reasons. First of all, this is a beautiful <laughs> film. And secondly, I've been able to exact the most perfect revenge on you for making me watch Pollock last week. Um, I, I feel you said with glee that you were going to source out the most terrible films and make me suffer from watching them, and I, I feel like I've got my own back now. So now, it is I, terrible. You did it on purpose. No, no, because I, this is a double win for me because I thought it was brilliant and you thought it was terrible, and everyone's a winner. Can I tell you what I liked about it? Please do. I, I'm all ears. I thought it was a beautiful film, and I liked it for the fact that it didn't do what we have, have criticised some of these films for trying to do before. It wasn't a biopic. It wasn't trying to capture the glory of an artist. I think it was trying, and, and I agree with you, it might not have succeeded um, in, in a sort of factually correct way, but it succeeded in a filmic way. It was trying to give us an idea of what, what it was like to be Van Gogh of what it was like to be a painter uh, battling with, with mental illness, um, surrounded by hostility, uh, wondering how on earth you fit into the world and yet having this sublime talent uh, and, and it not being appreciated and that being uh, tremendously frustrating on top of all the mental illness uh, issues that you had as well. And I thought it, I thought it did that triumphantly. Um, now, mainly... Uh, that that is it's true this is because Willem Dafoe did a, a marvelous performance I, I I could watch him in any film but I I loved every second he was on the screen in this film and and, and I, it's a shame he, he was he was nominated for a, a best actor Oscar but he didn't win unfortunately he was up against stiff competition with with Remy Malik but what I I loved the way it was shot, actually. I didn't mind the dodgy camera work. And, and I think it, it succeeded in, in that, in trying to get an idea, and we discussed this last week, trying to get an idea of what goes through an artist's mind when they sit in front of a canvas and decide to paint something. And that, as we've discussed, is very difficult to present um, in a script or on a screen. And it was summarised for me uh, really beautifully by the scene where he, uh, he comes into his rented room in Arles, it's freezing cold, and he sits down and he takes his his shoes off um, and he's, he's shivering in the cold and you see that his shoes are really bashed up they've got a hole in the sole and you think ah, oh, well this is a scene to, to tell us how poor he is and how cold he is and how he's struggling with poverty but actually he just puts the shoes on the floor in front of him and then he's inspired to paint them and blow me down Willem Dafoe actually paints a really good Van Gogh like painting of the shoes and it's, it's no, wonderful it's to see it occurring I, I loved every moment of it it's not a wonderful Van Gogh-like painting of the shoes. It's exactly what you've complained about in every single film we've had on here so far, which is that when they, they you show the artist painting the actual things, the things that they do, the reproductions are dreadful. So was this. Apart from anything else, they were totally anachronistic. 
Van Gogh painted his boots when he was in Paris in in in, in 1886, so two years before fancy. he got there. So it's a, it's shifting that forward so that you can then spend the next ten minutes, ten minutes, looking down on a pair of feet going through a field, which is all that happens. No sound, no one talking, just feet plodding through a field. But how do you think, how do you think Van Gogh ridiculous. might have got the idea to paint his feet? He, he Perhaps he did that. Perhaps he went plodding through a field and looked he at his feet. He painted his shoes because of various things that he talked about in the past. I mean, he was a great, he wrote about pilgrimage. Even when he was a missionary in England, he used to talk about walking everywhere. You know, he walked from Ramsgate to London once when he swapped, when he switched jobs. It's what he did. Um, he was obsessed with his shoes. But, I mean, that's not nothing to do with his time. It, it, the least shoe-like moment in his career was when he went to Arles, <laughs> is when he did the least boot-like walking in that circumstance. So it was completely inappropriate. And, and the, the reproduction was terrible. It wasn't the worst one. The worst one is at the other end of the film, where he's painting Dr. Gachet. And Dr. Gachet suddenly comes up in a Van Gogh picture with eyes that... That, that look like they belong in, in some of the, the homeschooling things I've been doing on Twitter. There's a dreadful reproduction. Quite honestly, Ed Harris's Pollocks last week were a million times better than, than the um, Willem Dafoe Van Gogh's in this. The reproductions oh. were terrible, absolutely mm -hmm. terrible. Yet another of the, the film's many faults. But that 10-minute sequence of the feet walking through the swaying mud, and suddenly they're going to a field of, full of dead sunflowers. Did you remember that scene? Yeah. And it looked like a Second World War scene and um they, they, oh, it was just so portentous and pretentious awful everything took an hour to happen the scene where he's talking to the priest in san Remy that was 15 minutes of him talking to a priest oh, about like jesus no wonder most thing. of the film consists of him talking to, to other people and in a really dreary way but william defoe could read the phone book and i'd like that i'd pay to watch that really and no i like the scene in the church and the asylum because i thought i thought overall the film was a very sympathetic portrayal of mental illness that the fact that someone uh, suffering like that might be bewildered and have no comprehension of the suffering that they could be causing other people and thinking that they're entirely good-natured and not understanding how to to deal with the world's reaction to them it's a major projection we don't even know if it's fair to describe what he had as mental illness. I mean, he had he had a breakdown of some sort, yes. Um, but this sense that he is some kind of, you know, some kind of schizophrenic waiting to happen and that he is uh, completely unable to hold himself together mentally and all that. I mean, that is just typical, a typical idea of what the tortured artist can be. It was an absolute projection of 20th century fantasies about a real artist, a la Julian Schnabel. Um, and they really bear so little... It's so little um, relationship with what we actually know about Van Gogh. I mean, the Van Gogh Museum, right? There, there are two forces at work in Van Gogh culture at the moment, okay? There is the Julian Schnabel, crazy, tortured spirit. We never understood him. We, we have to wait 100 years before we understand Van Gogh. There's that thing, which is epitomized in this film. But the Van Gogh uh, Museum itself in Amsterdam, they're trying to present Van Gogh as this incredibly rational figure who studied, I mean, neither of these films go into the fact that he studied in Antwerp for several months, went to art school, was tutored in various ways, did actually manage to sell more pictures than they say, was an artist who, who studied a lot and was very sensible and practical about a lot of his work. You know, that side of Van Gogh, the legible, normal, coherent painter is overlooked and overtaken by this crazy man thing. So that is always annoying, but it, it's given its head in that eternity's gate. It's absolutely projected into the worst possible realm of fantasy. 
and uh, Willem Dafoe, I mean, God, a poor guy. It's a tortuous performance. If you found it a great one, I, you know, I envy you. You know, I, I, I found it, it, it just over the top, really. Unlikely. Um, there wasn't hardly any script because there's huge tracts of the film where no one actually says anything. They just sit there staring at each other or walking <laughs> through the fields or shots of Van Gogh's feet and boots and whatever. The script was a subtle foundation. Um, it's an unreliable presentation of, of, of an artistic fantasy. Yeah. Apart from that, it's all right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, as you can tell, I'm looking down the zoom lens, smiling wonderfully because I enjoy seeing people tearing their hair out in exasperation. <laughs> so perhaps that's why I like Willem Dafoe's performance. Well, where I will agree with you, Aldi, is the film was had some quite significant factual errors in, including the uh, representation of how Van Gogh died. And yes. also the suggestion that he uh, did a sketchbook of some 65 sketchbooks in a ledger, uh, which was only discovered in, I think, 2016. Uh, yeah. as a, and he left it behind at this hotel as a sort of thank you gift. Well, I think it's been pretty comprehensively shown that those drawings are not, in fact, by Van Gogh. Well, more than that, they're not by Van Gogh. It was, it was never in any way convincing that they were. Right from the moment they, they were published, um, it was obviously a forgery. Um, this ludicrous idea that he wasn't that he didn't commit suicide, but he was shot by two young boys in a field. That's another ludicrous idea that emerged around the time Schnabel was making this film. And there's a third one as well, which is that um, the girl that he gives the ear to, who was always in all the press reports at the time, if you look at newspapers in Ireland at the time, she was called Rachel the Prostitute. There's another book that came out in about 2015, 2016, which named her as a girl called Gabby, who worked at the night cafe with Madame Junot, and she wasn't really a prostitute, she was a sort of working girl who worked as a waitress. So she's in that as well. So it's as if Schnabel and the writers have read the three latest books on Van Gogh, all of which are full of factual errors, and they've used them to inform their film. But listen, if you've got a film that takes a book that is transparently fake of Van Gogh's drawings and makes it central to the film, how can you trust anything about it? I mean, that shows a collapse of connoisseurship, which is a quality you show normally uh, in abundance, um, that immediately should disqualify the whole film from any serious respect, surely. Well, that's what I said at the beginning. I, d I didn't feel for me it was a film that was trying to represent, you know, a factual narrative of someone's life. It was trying to get inside their head, which is uh, a really ambitious task for a film. We've criticised many films already for failing, and I thought it was bold of them to try, and for me it succeeded. Well, it did get into Julian Schnabel's head rather than Vincent van Gogh's, I would say. But uh, listen, I like one more, you like the other one more. Um, we'll score them and we'll see where we get at the end of all this, this tortuous process. One more week to go, one more <laughs> film to go in the nightmare that is Waldy and Bendy's search for the worst film about an artist ever made. I think we need to loosen up a bit next week, um, Bender. We're going to look at the, uh, the Tony Hancock film, famous Tony Hancock film called The Rebel, which I know for a fact is lighter in tone and might just relieve some of the agony uh, as we come to our final conclusion on the uh, the worst film about an artist ever made. I look forward to that. And, and in fact, many listeners have suggested we see that. So it'll be a fitting end for us. It will be a fitting end uh, and also a welcome end. Luckily, though, we don't have to leave with that because we've got the good bit of the podcast still to come. And um, we can forget Willem Dafoe. We can forget the tortures of Van Gogh because we can move on to something exciting. We can move on to On the Wall. On the Wall.
Oh, relief, relief on the wall, Bendy. I feel like I've been let out of prison uh, to talk about something nice. What, what have you got for us? What, what, what are you going to hang on your wall in your imaginary museum during lockdown? Oh, it's another big one, Waldy. It's a full-length portrait by Pompeo Batoni, who I've chosen in this section before, and who I don't think floats your boat as much as he floats mine. So I'm trying again. Uh, this is a portrait of Colonel William Gordon, painted in Rome in 1766. If people have in their imagination a portrait by Pompeo Batoni, it's probably this one. It's quite a famous picture. He is standing in wonderful tartan plaid, draped around him a bit like a, a Roman toga, and he's got a, a military uniform on, and his legs and arms are, I think the phrase is, akimbo, and he's got a, a sword behind him. He's standing in front of the Colosseum. This is your archetypal grand tour portrait. Uh, one side is the Colosseum, and beside him is a, a statue of the Roman goddess uh, Roma, and it's meant to show uh, that not only has the good colonel been on his grand tour, but he is wonderfully enlightened and cultured because he's seen all the sights that a Briton on his grand tour was supposed to see. And that would have that would have set him above uh, the rest of his peers uh, back in Scotland and Britain. Something about it tells me he's Scottish. Um, it could be this mass of tartan in which he's enveloped. I mean, it's not a kilt. It's a kind of robe, isn't it? I mean, is this what they used to wear in the 18th century? Full-length tartan robe? Yes, no, it's, it's a very obviously Scottish uh, thing that he's wearing. And it's quite interesting that he's represented in this tartan plaid, uh, because had he wanted to show himself wearing this kind of outfit back in Britain at the time, it would have been illegal, because a tartan following the Jacobite rebellion in 1745, this kind of tartan was, you were not allowed to wear it because it was being seen as being too obviously Scottish. But uh, Waldi, I've been a little bit selfish in choosing this painting, because the real reason I chose it is uh, you've very kindly mentioned uh, my TV series at the beginning of the programme, Britain's Lost Masterpieces. This is just really by way of another plug for the series because um, in the programme that is available on iPlayer, uh, as we speak, um, I am seen wandering around the streets of Rome looking at various lovely paintings. And when I watched the programme go out live on Monday, it was a really surreal feeling, actually, because we've been locked down for so long with no prospect of travel anywhere. And suddenly I saw myself wandering the streets of Rome amongst the crowds. And it reminded me of this painting. And this painting demonstrates what I want to do when the lockdown is finally lifted. I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to wander around pretending to be a Scottish grand tourist like this. And I'm going to see the sights. And I'm going to bask in the sunlight and I'm going to celebrate life being back to normal. The big question is what are you going to be wearing, Bendy, when you this, do this, right? Yeah. Are you going to have this yeah. full length kilt with robe outfit? Yes, you can come with me. You can wear Polish national dress <laughs> yeah. and I'll wear Scottish national dress. You haven't seen my legs, have you? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, do you have a tartan? Have you got, is there, is there a Bendor Grosvenor tartan? Um, there is not, no, because I'm not actually Scottish. I'm just one of those pretenders. Well, it's what it is. It's a, a painting in which a Scottish chap wearing perhaps far too much tartan draped around him um, is posing in the manner of a great hero of perhaps the Greeks or the Romans, um, one foot casually lifted up onto a pedestal, right hand casually holding his giant claymore, left hand casually pushed against his hip, turned away from us in the casual manner of the true hero. Um, it's 
Batoni at his best, or in some people's eyes, his worst. He was a Grand Tour maestro. You know, we, we all turned up in Rome in the Grand Tour, um, and he would paint people looking heroic and masterful. Um, I think if you're Scottish, I mean, this has to be like the best picture ever, really. I mean, it, it, it could not be more jingoistic um, and more um, nationalistic. It's the kind of SNP in a picture, isn't it? Uh, it? It's the great Scottish hero with a claymore. And I have to say that a good tartan is a striking thing and he's painted it brilliantly and this red tunic he's got on it. It's quite a thrilling thing. Um, and I could see this being a rousing picture if you're Scottish. Uh, and since Poles and Scots are so similar, you know, we're all people that think with our hearts yeah, I mean, I like it. It's rousing. That's what it is, rousing. Well, I've, I've scored another win there. That's tremendous. And I should say that this painting is on display at Fivey Castle in Scotland, which has a, a tremendous collection of art and is always well worth a visit. Right. Well, I have, as always, by accident, but seemingly by some decisions made by the art gods that I should always do the opposite to you, um, I've gone for something bleak. And I've gone for a painting by Alice Neal, who is uh, a female painter for, uh, who was born in fact in 1900, worked furiously away throughout most of the 20th century, um, painting figurative stuff that was by and large out of fashion for most of her career. It has now been rediscovered and is now being appreciated for what it was. Um, and so she's one of the big heroes of this revival that's taken place in interest in feminine artists of the 20th century. This is a portrait of Andy Warhol that she painted in 1970. And um, Warhol, as you know, got shot by this loony um, Valerie Solanis who came up to him in the factory and shot him um, through this misunderstanding about something he'd done with her career. Um, and it was a very, very serious attack, and he very nearly died. He was saved by the, you know, by the skin of his teeth by a great medical service in New York. But it left him with these huge scars in his body. And Alice Nils painted him, uh, and joggers, if you want to visualise this picture, it's a pale picture of a full-length Andy Warhol sitting on a couch with his knees clasped rather nervously together, and he's got his top off. So you, you see his sagging upper body because he's... You know, he's not a young man anymore. He hasn't got um, a six-pack or anything like that. Instead, he's got a saggy body, and you can see the scars poking out, and you can also see the corset that he had to wear to keep himself intact. It's plaintive. It's sad. It's it's an Andy Warhol we're not used to. Um, it tugs at my heartstrings, and I think it just felt as if it chimed with some of the moods that I've been having during the great lockdown. There's a sort of bleakness to it that touches my chord, if you like. And it's also a wonderful picture. I mean, it's by far the best portrait of Warhol, I think, because it has none of the glamour and superficiality of most of the images of him and any of the pop art images and, and, and presents him as something much deeper than that. It's literally Warhol warts and all with his top off, um, looking sad. Great painting by Alice Neal. So it's a kind of reminder of what humanity is really like for me. That's why I want it in my museum without walls. I'm very grateful to you for choosing it, because I, I was not aware of this painting. And goodness me, it is fantastic. It's so powerful, isn't it? Mm. And so honest and confrontational. And yet the, I love the face of, of Warhol in it. Uh, his eyes are closed. And despite the suffering that is revealed in his body, he looks rather benign and, and thoughtful. And, and it's, a, it's a touching portrayal. And I like it particularly for the reasons, as you say, that it's a world away from the images we usually see of him. Uh, and I also, I love the craft of it. I love the drawing lines in blue, the way it's been constructed. It's, uh, it's top-notch stuff, this. I love it. Mm. 
great. Oh, that's good. We're ending with harmony. Um, I'm so happy about that, Bendy, because I love you from the bottom of my heart really deeply. And it, it hurts me when you get things as wrong as, as you did with the Turbises Gate. So it's just lovely that we're back on the right track here. Um, and I think that's just a great moment to, to finish it, don't you think? Let's talk about nothing else and stop right there. <laughs> so it's goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. Woldy and Bendy.